Thank you, Pastor DeVinney, and good morning, everyone. It's good to be here. I was thinking, he said uh, that I had served here for 23 years, and it actually was 23 years. I was employed by Grace Baptist Church of Lancaster, April the 1st, 1974, and my last day here was March 31st, 1997. That's 23 years. You say, well, what's so significant about that? Well, one of the persons I've had the privilege of studying through uh, my academic teaching is a man by the name of Jonathan Edwards. I don't know how many of you have heard of Jonathan Edwards, but Jonathan Edwards served the church uh, at Northampton, Massachusetts for 23 years. So I have something in common with Jonathan Edwards. However, there is a difference. Jonathan Edwards got fired. I did not. <laughs> if I would have stayed longer, it might have been different. But, I'm not, but he did. Actually, 23 years, a great man of God. Uh, it is uh, obviously that being here brings back a flood of memories. But our purpose is to look at God's Word. And perhaps the best way to begin is... Uh, uh, to remind you or say that Carolyn and I had the opportunity of studying at what is now Columbia International University. And that is located in Columbia, South Carolina. And in that area of the United States, uh, there would be churches, many of which would be rural churches. And on occasions, I would get opportunities to go to those churches and to preach. And I remember one day that I went to a church uh, located near Columbia. I think we had already been married, so it was about probably latter part of 1967. And they had what is called a church reunion. And this was new to me. Uh, these churches, and in order to put it in the uh, correct context, as it were, usually would be rural churches out in the midst of a grove. It'd be a very, very nice setting. And people that had attended the church, but because of work or education, other reasons, uh, would have located the different places. They would have one time a year a reunion. And they, the people would come back and they would uh, recount some of their experiences, the uh, events that had taken place, and the emphasis was pretty much on the past, what uh, had taken place there before. And as uh, my feeling is, it's good to speak about the past. Many of us can look back with great joy on uh, things that God has done, but yet the days in which you and I live uh, do not call for nostalgia, they call for understanding of the times and what does God have to say to me today. So with that in mind, I would like you to take your Bibles and open them to the book of Psalms, Psalm 1. I, now I must confess, I must confess that to preach the same sermon twice is a little bit um, new to me. Uh, hopefully there is some relation between what I said at 8.15 and what you're going to hear uh, today, or at this time. But at the same time, uh, it may be a little different, and you'll please excuse me for that. But the book of Psalms, and Psalm 1, 
very familiar passage of the Word of God. But before we look at the Psalms, I would like to take just a moment and give you a background to where this psalm appears in the Word of God. If you have an English Bible, which I imagine most of you would have, the book of Psalms is the first book of a series of books that we call poetical literature. And the first book in those five books of poetry is the book of Job. Then you have Psalms, Proverbs, and so forth. But this is not how the Hebrew scriptures were arranged. It's important to state, however, that the Hebrew scriptures and our Old Testament are exactly the same. There's not more or less. So the Hebrew scriptures and our Old Testament, the English Bible, have the same amount of material, exactly the same. However, it's arranged differently. And you might ask, how so? Well, they begin with a division into three parts. They're called the law, the prophets, and the writings. Law, prophets, writings. The law would be equivalent to the first five books of our Old Testament, the books of Moses, the Pentateuch. It is also called the Torah. So the first part of the Hebrew scriptures of the three is called law. The second part is called prophets. So you have law, prophets. However, they do something differently about uh, dividing the prophets. There are four books that are called the former prophets and four books that are called the latter prophets. Those former prophets include books that we call historical, such as Joshua, Judges, First and Second Samuel, one book, and First and Second Kings. So they have four books they call former prophets. And we would say they're historical books, which they are. But then they have four books that they call the latter prophets. And of what do they consist? They consist of the book of Isaiah, the book of Jeremiah, the book of Ezekiel, and then they take the 12 minor prophets and put them in one book, and it's called the book of the 12. So you have former prophets, which we would call historical books, and latter prophets, and they are called uh, the uh, latter prophets, four books, um, which would include uh, the books of the prophets that we're familiar with, but missing the book of Daniel. Book of Daniel does not appear in what are called the prophets, the latter prophets, according to the Jewish scripture. They're in a sec uh, that book is in a book that is called the writings. And uh, by the way, I'll probably give a test after uh, the <laughs> service today because I'm used to teaching, uh, so be sure and take notes, okay? But it's important that you understand that, really, so you see that. But then they have a third section, and that third section is called writings, and that would be the other books of the Hebrew scriptures that are not in the first two, and that would include uh, the book of Daniel, include uh, chronicles, and so forth. So you have this threefold section. You have the law, you have the prophets, and then you have the writings. 
And even in the writings, the first part, uh, they have literature that is called wisdom literature. Wisdom literature. And it's somewhat equivalent to our poetical books, but they do not begin with the book of Job. It begins with the book of Psalms. So when we open our Bibles to Psalm, uh, the book of Psalms, which would be the second of the poetical books, it is really the introduction to the third part of the Hebrew scriptures or wisdom literature. Wisdom. If there is something that I would suggest to you that I believe our generation truly needs, and all of us, both corporately and individually, we need wisdom to navigate our life in a times that are extremely difficult. And so I would like to talk about Psalm 1 from the standpoint of David's blessed man. Because my desire for you and for me, for all of us, that we truly would experience what David is writing about in this psalm. So if your Bibles are open to the book of Psalms, which would be the beginning of the third section of the Hebrew Scriptures, but an introduction to wisdom literature, what is the first word that we encounter? It is the word blessed. Blessed. It is a word that can be translated by happy, uh, fortunate. And interestingly enough, it is a word that in the original text actually appears as a plural. It is not singular. It is plural. And we could translate it as something like this. All the happinesses of the man. The happinesses, the blessednesses, in a plural way, of a certain individual. So he's described here. He's described. Now, as I speak this morning, I'd not only like us to look at the text of Scripture, but I would like to draw on uh, three events, really, that took place here in this church, or connected with this church, that made a profound impact on my own life. So I'm speaking kind of personally. And I'll explain as I go, away, uh, go along. Uh, the first uh, incident occurred after this church had begun. Uh, it began in 1974, as you heard. Uh, but around the year 1976 or so, uh, because we were growing and because we were still a branch work of the Grace Baptist Church of Lancaster, uh, we would have different roles and different things, and I ended up actually teaching a Sunday school class. And that Sunday school class was comprised of teenagers. How many of you might, here might have taught a Sunday school class of teenagers? Okay. It can be a challenge, but it can be a wonderful opportunity. So I was teaching this class of... Uh, and if I remember correctly, we may have even uh, combined uh, the uh, junior high with senior high. Uh, so we have uh, young people of the ages of, say, uh, 13 through 17 or so forth, may, so forth. Uh, so I'm teaching a class, and for one reason or another, 
I decided I was going to give them a survey. I was going to give them a survey that had one question on it. And this was the question. And I'd like you to answer it, uh, at least in your mind. If you would be presented with this question, this survey today, how would you answer it? And this was it. Remember to whom I'm speaking. I'm speaking to uh, youngsters that are still in school, uh, looking ahead to life. And this was the question. What do you want out of life? What do you want your life to experience? That's a really a interesting question, isn't it? And the amazing thing to me was when I got those that survey back, and let's say there were 12, 13, 15 people, I'm, I'm not sure. The amazing thing to me that I've never forgotten is they all had the same answer. Now, it wasn't they were there copying, oh, what did you put down? No, no, no. They were just, what do you want out of life? What do you want? And the, do you know what the answer was? It was simply this. I want to be happy. I want to be happy. And that speaks from the human heart, doesn't it? Is there anyone here, regardless of your age and experience, that wants to be unhappy? That wants life to be tragic? That you want to experience life as a time of heartbreak and sorrow? No. The human heart desires happiness. Now, here, when we're talking about the blessedness and the happiness of this individual, this man of God, uh, there are qualifications and there are definitions. But I would submit to you, people want to be happy. I want to experience something real and joyful. But then, if that is true, then why is there so much heartache in this world? Why is there so much sorrow? Why are there so much tragedies occurring? Well, there are answers to those. But I think we would have to say it's because of sin and the effects of sin. Now, I know things can happen and have happened that are not sinful. They're non-moral that bring great heartache. I know that. But many people make choices. So today, I'm going to speak about choices that we need to make, all of us. And choices that the blessed man made, in contrast to other choices. So look at this psalm, Psalm 1. And it is interesting in how the psalm is arranged, that David, whom we suppose is the author, and I think with good reason, talks about, in verse 1, certain individuals. He talks about ungodly. He talks about sinners. He talks about scornful. And there may indeed be some sort of progression here, that there's uh, counsel uh, that well, walks, as it were, and then, uh, or not counsel, but people that uh, are ungodly will walk a certain way, and then that means they're moving, then they stop, and then they sit as a fixed position. And notice their descriptions. Ungodly. 
those who live in such a way that do not reflect the honor and glory of God, of sinners, those who willfully break the law of God. And then perhaps the most serious is the last one, the last description there, scornful. Those who look with contempt, look down with scorn on the things of God. But notice this man, the blessed man, does not do that. He doesn't walk with them. He doesn't stand with them and he does not sit with them. He is described in verses 2 and 3 as having a different direction to his life. What is the key to that? And we see that in verse 2. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. In contrast to the individuals mentioned in Psalm 1 verse 1, he has a different delight. His delight is in the law of the Lord. And perhaps someone is thinking, oh well, the person speaking today, he's just talking about law, and law means uh, obligation, law means duty, legalism, and so forth. Well, I want to submit to you, that is not the true meaning of this word law. It is a word, of course, that is in the original language of Hebrew, and you have heard it, I'm sure, of Torah. Torah. You've heard of that word, I'm sure. But what does Torah mean? At its very basis and heart, it means instruction. His delight is in the instruction of the Lord. Let me ask the question. If you would be, uh, the question would be put forth to you this morning, what is your real delight? What do you delight doing? What is that that brings joy and pleasure to your life? The man of God, the truly blessed man, finds his delight in the law of the Lord, of the instruction of the Lord. The willingness of God and the desire of God to impart to you and me his counsel, his willingness, his desire to teach and instruct you. What would you think if, if uh, you, desire, you desired to be a medical doctor? Let's say you're graduated from college, you've got your pre-med, so you're going to be uh, brought into medical school. And the very first day, a, a renowned physician would come up to you and that individual would say, I've heard about you. I've heard that you've done well in your undergraduate studies. You would like to be a medical doctor and here is my list of uh, qualifications and you read it in the outstanding person. And for the next years, four years, which is medical school, I would like to instruct you. I would like to take you into my counsel. I would be willing to help you. I'll guide you through. If you have a question, I probably am able to answer it. I'm willing to do that. Now, who would say, nah, I know more, more than you, Doc. <laughs> You'd call him Doc. You wouldn't even call him Doctor. Uh, I know more than you. And yeah, buzz off. I, I'm going to do it the way I want to do it. 
and you tell someone about that, what would they say to you? You aren't very smart. You are not smart. In fact, you're a foolish individual. Because a world-renowned physician has offered to take you into his confidence, instruct and teach you, and you're turning it down? Well, that's the life or illustration of a medical doctor. But you know, God has the same offer that he gives to you and me. The same proposal. He said, I want to instruct you. I want to teach you. I want to guide you. I don't want you to be anything other or experiencing anything other than my richest blessing and my uh, counsel and all that I can do for you. And yet, how many of the world's population say, I don't want it. I want to do it my way. I want to do it in a way that pleases me. And I don't need your counsel. That person would be very foolish. We'll return to that in a minute. But notice what he says. His delight is in the law of the Lord. So he manifests a teachable spirit. And the key to happiness the first step is a teachable spirit. Willingness to learn from God himself. And notice, he not only makes it his delight, it is really the way he lives. In his law, he meditates day and night. Now that does not mean he doesn't do other things. He might do any number of things, a profession, a job, and so forth. But there is an atmosphere. Have you ever walked into a certain places and found there's an atmosphere here? You can tell it. Uh, it's just the way things are conducted, the way things are done. There's an atmosphere. Well, this is what this individual has done with the law of God. He wants to create an atmosphere in which he is going to walk and to do God's will. He meditates in it. He reflects upon it. He ponders it. He consults it. Uh, he makes it the very core and foundation of his life. The law of God. And remember, the law of God is not a list of do's and don'ts. Although certainly in his word, God has do's and he has don'ts. But the basic idea is to instruct and teach us and bring us to a place of wisdom and understanding. And notice what he also says about this person in uh, the third uh, stanza. What is the result of a life like this? The truly happy man, the truly blessed man, he shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water. And here the psalmist David uh, brings forth a figure uh, that he presents. Now, when I think of uh, what he has here in verse 3, a tree planted by the rivers of water, perhaps we're thinking of something like Lancaster County with the Conestoga River. And if you would follow that, you're going to find trees along the way and uh, sort of uh, groves and forests and so forth. But that's not the image uh, of, of David. It's actually in what we would call a desert area where there is no vegetation. 
However, there have been canals. It says rivers of water. They've actually been dug out. And there's an irrigation system so that this water flows. And this tree has been planted. In other words, it didn't just sprout up there. It didn't just grow up there. It's been put there for a purpose, and it's been planted close to the water supply. Now, I have a question. Is a water supply important for a tree? How about, how about if I decide to plant a tree, and I'm going to plant it in a concrete area? I'm just going to put concrete there. And I'll put the tree, and then I'll put the concrete around it, and uh, it'll, it'll, be, it'll sit on top of concrete, it'll be there. It'll be stable on it, it won't move. Uh, it'll, it's not going to go to the left or right, but what's going to happen to that tree? It's not going to flourish. It can. It's going to die. Why? It's cut off from the source of life, which is water. And so this tree has been planted by rivers of water. So there is an adequate supply. And this tree can grow and flourish. It then, not only does it have health, it is fruitful. It bringeth forth his fruit in his season. It is not only a tree that is stable. Not only a tree that is flourishing, it is a tree that produces fruit. That it accomplishes the reason why God created. What do apple trees usually produce? Apples, pear trees, pears. Because God has designed that tree in order to be fruitful. And God has designed the Christian life in such a way that you and I be fruitful in it. But we're never going to be fruitful. We're never going to bring forth our fruit in a season unless we are planted by the rivers of water, uh, that we're stable people, and that we are fruitful. And it all goes back to the choices we make or have made, the choice that I'm going to delight in the law of the Lord. And I'm going to have a teachable spirit, and I'm going to live in such a way that will bring glory and honor to his name. And notice, this is not, as we say, uh, just for one time. This is a continual process. His leaf also shall not wither. There's going to be continual health, continual fruitfulness. And then David, as it were, sums it up uh, by giving us this statement, whatever he doeth shall prosper. That is the life described of the truly blessed person. The person who delights in God's law. The person whom God truly blesses. And as I began this morning, I made reference to that survey that I gave of young people desiring to be happy and which I feel is the desire of all of us. But why isn't it taking place? What is the reason? What has taken or what has occurred? Is it because God has failed? No. It's because we have not desired that. 
And that brings me to my second uh, illustration, and it was one that occurred right here in 1977. That's a long time ago, right? 1977. Some of us remember that day. Some of us don't. Um, but in 1977, we had a missionary conference, and the speaker was a man by the name of W. Elwin Davies. And he is a man whom I had met oh, maybe 10 years before while I was a student at Columbia International University. He came to the school, he spoke. Uh, w. Elwin Davies actually was a Welshman. He was uh, a, uh, a soldier in the Second World War uh, in North Africa uh, with uh, uh, Montgomery and uh, Alexander and some of those generals. And he was a wonderful man of God. And he came uh, to our missionary conference. He was the speaker. And it was the closing day. It was Sunday morning. And W. Elwin Davies was well known in this area. And when we came to have the service, now a couple things you have to keep in mind is that the entrance to the church was back near those end windows. Uh, the, it, this was the church. Of course, it had the basement, but no additions and so forth. And there were pews, and every pew was filled. There was not one place that was empty. In fact, as I told the first audience, there was not even a place for me. So I sat on one of those benches while he spoke. And he spoke from here. I'll never forget what he said and what his message was. Living without regrets. Living without regrets. In other words, to live in such a way that when you get to my age, and maybe beyond it, you can look back and say, by the grace of God, and it's all by the grace of God, there are no regrets. And I contrast that with a song that only one person had known of this person who wrote the song. Uh, the song uh, was written by a man by the name of Paul Anka. I'm, I'm going to ask you, uh, how many people have heard of Paul Anka? <laughs> wow. <laughs> That's because you were in the first service. <laughs> Paul... <laughs> Paul Anka, okay. Paul Anka. Do you know the song? It's called My Way. And it was sung by Frank Sinatra and Elvis Presley. It is one of the most ungodly songs I have ever heard. Uh, Frank Sinatra, of course, was world famous, marvelous singer. But basically, he said in that song, Regrets, I've had a few, but I did it my way. My way. I don't care what other people think. I don't care what other people say. I'm going to do it my way. Now, when the living God hears words like that from people he's created in his image, to know him, to serve him, to enjoy him, then not good things occur. My way. Oh, 
don't choose your way. Choose God's way, which is a way of joy and pleasantness. Are there heartaches and sorrows along the way? Yes. But there is great joy and thanksgiving. So I think of Frank Sinatra, who did it his way and received from the world much accolation and praise. But where is Frank Sinatra today? We have to ask that question. Where is he? We don't know. We don't know. But he did it his way. And that really struck a responsive chord in my life. I don't want to do it my way. I honestly want to do it God's way. Now many times I don't know what it is. So I have to ask him and he'll instruct me and teach me. Many ways or many times there could be I fail to do it as I should. And there is cleansing and forgiveness. But doing it God's way. Whatsoever he doeth shall prosper. And then in verses 4 through 6, the psalmist returns to those that do it the way they want to do it. They want to do it their way. And it ties in with the results of verse 1. What are the results of verse 1? Of walking in the counsel of the ungodly. Of standing in the way of sinners. And sitting in the way of the scornful. He tells us in verse 4. The ungodly are not so. But are like the chaff which the wind driveth away. If you were here for the interview. I probably mentioned I was raised on a farm. And uh, we would do baling. We would bail uh, hay, um, usually alfalfa or clover. We bale straw, but I don't re ever remember my dad baling chaff. We didn't do it. Why? It's just the husk of the grain and it's worthless. Has no nutritional value. The hay, yes, for the animals, the, even the straw for the bedding, but the chaff no value at all. They're like chaff. They don't produce anything. They have no value. They are driven away by the wind. And the godly, the ungodly shall not stand in the way of judgment. Sinners in the congregation of the righteous. The Lord knoweth the way of the righteous. But these final words. And contrast them with the final words of verse 3. Verse 3 ends with, Whatever he doeth shall prosper. Verse 6, The way of the ungodly shall perish. What a difference. I don't believe you could have a more stark contrast, do you? The way, the, whatever he doeth shall prosper, shall grow, be fruitful. The ungodly shall perish. Well, what makes the difference? It's the attitude toward the word of God. And that brings me to my third illustration uh, from here. Talked about the survey 
uh, with those young people. Talked about Elwyn Davies uh, speaking here in March of 1977. But it has to do with something that's not here now. And that was, or is, a pulpit. Uh, when we first came, and uh, if you don't know somewhat of the background of this church, the church itself, the first building, was built by a group that was called the Calvary Baptist Church of Millersville. They sold the property to Grace Baptist Church of Lancaster. But it was built by uh, the Calvary Baptist Church of, of Millersville, and then they relocated over to Milton Road, where they are today. Uh, but when we came, uh, the church was furnished, and uh, I told people we bought everything for $75,000, uh, including my uh, tractor. Uh, I always liked that tractor, being a farm boy. Uh, farm off, if I remember correctly. Uh, so the church is really uh, furnished, and they had a pulpit. And it was quite large, and, uh, but inside the pulpit, there was a little tag. And um, the tag said, we would see Jesus. That's what the tag said. And uh, so out of curiosity, I asked someone, well, what is the background to this? Why, why is that little tag there? And this person had attended the uh, Calvary Baptist Church when it met here. And he said, well, what happened uh, was that um, during the course of their uh, time here, uh, unfortunately, there was occasions when the person who would be speaking would uh, not necessarily uh, edify us by how he would speak. He would speak very angrily and so forth. And I don't want to get into a lot of details, but this is what was told me. And so, as a reminder to all the speakers, we had this little tag put in there. The tag, we would see Jesus. And I thought about that, and it brought to my mind an incident that occurred in the life of a man of God. In fact, he's called Moses, the man of God. And it occurred at the time that the children of Israel uh, were going through the wilderness and they did not have water, and so they complained, and Moses went to God, and God said, uh, take uh, your rod, go to the rock, but speak to the rock. Go speak to the rock, and water will be furnished. And Moses went to the rock, but he did not speak to it. You know what he did. He struck the rock, struck it twice. And there are different uh, explanations of what all that meant. But the result was, although water was given to the children of Israel, Moses was not permitted to lead the people of God into the promised land. Forty years he had been in Pharaoh's palace. Forty years he had been on the backside of the desert preparing. Forty years he led the children of Israel through the wilderness. And they're almost there. They're almost there. And yet, because he disobeyed God, he was 
he was not permitted to take the people into the promised land. What's the lesson we can learn from that? And the lesson is simply this. What did God want the people of Israel to see? What did God know the people of Israel needed to have? They needed to have water, but they needed to know that that water came from a gracious God, even though they were complaining. But what did they get? They got the water, but they got an angry Moses. And the lesson has come back to me. A, an angry Moses is a poor substitute for a gracious God. An angry Moses is a poor substitute for a gracious God. What does God want to see here, to take place? He wants you to see his grace and his mercy. Well, what's that got to do with the tag? The tag is we would see Jesus. And it's through the gospel, the gospel message. And so I'd like to close with these words. Do you know Jesus Christ as your personal Savior? Are you truly born again? Have you truly experienced his great work of justification, regeneration, adoption, the, the presence of the Spirit of God? That is where it begins. And then to continue on and see the great joy that comes from serving the Lord and doing his will. So much of my life is involved with this church. 23 years, a long time. That's about one half of my life. <laughs> and that is a complete lie. <laughs> but uh, so much. And people, God bless you. May you grow and learn. And I'm looking for Joel not to bypass me in the number of years serving, but to double the number of years of serving. So Joel, please come and dismiss us.